Hey everyone, it's Tisa and Katie from Hearts and Hoves, Turquoise and Trauma, and we have a really amazing guest with us today. Her name is Dr. Dakota. Um, she is she specializes in trauma. She can tell you a little bit more about her education, about her practice. She is tribally enrolled with MHA. And is there somewhere else, Dr. Dakota? Um, my enrolled tribe is MHA Nation, but I also have um, ancestry at Turtle Mountain. Okay, mm -hmm. awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming. Do you just want to give us a little bit of history about yourself? Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me. So, you know, in the last, I don't want to date myself too much, but in the last couple of decades of my career, um, my focus has been primarily um, rural reservation-based and uh, trauma-informed services. So that, um, you know, includes all ages and, and all different types of people. But I, I started out working um, in the VA. And at that time, the VA had outreach clinics and was able to um, do several rotations and help with grant funding to develop outreach clinics and in uh, Montana and a Montana reservation and uh, two reservations in South Dakota. And then after working for a little while at the VA, I moved up to North Dakota and worked for Indian Health Service and then worked for the tribe for a little while before going into private practice. So um, before private practice, I was able to um, partner with equine specialists um, on the reservation to develop services for adolescents using the equine-assisted psychotherapy and equine-assisted learning models. So I'm not a horse expert myself. I love horses. I respect horses. I um, feel that they're mystical and I'm always in awe of what they're able to teach me and what they're able to do for other people um, and just continue to learn um, from their wisdom and their knowledge. And I'm so interested in, you know, partnering with folks like yourself, Katie, to be able to um, provide more equine services to our region. Yeah, and we were so lucky to get to partner with you about a month ago on a project um, at Parshall at the Healing Horse Ranch. And one comment that you made that day that really wanted me to visit with you a little bit more and a little bit deeper is you said, um, we were talking about how trauma-informed is such a buzzword in healthcare and in um, and the education systems. Trauma-informed is everything you hear. And you just said that this work is really trauma-informed by nature. Could you elaborate on what you meant by that? Maybe you don't even remember saying it. No, I do. Yeah, I think that working with horses, you know, we don't have to teach horses how to be trauma-informed. We don't have to develop... Um, their knowledge and their skills about trauma-informed practices, they just by nature are trauma-informed. Um, they are um, reactive. They're very hyper-vigilant creatures that are reactive to anything around them that represents threat. Um, and so they have um, a big response in their bodies that um, in their nervous system and they have a nervous system just like humans do that when they sense or perceive threats or something that frightens them, um, they have a fear response and they react to that. And they also feel what people feel. And so they're good mirrors of our nervous system. And so through that interaction between 
person and horse, um, the horse teaches us about our nervous system. It teaches us how to regulate ourselves and calm ourselves. Um, it, and horses are relational creatures. Um, so in order to get our horse to do what we want it to do and be safe around us, we have to develop relationship and mutual trust. Um, and so the, the concept of, you know, one of the foundational concepts of trauma-informed care is safety, safety in our physical um, environment, safety inside of ourselves, felt what we call felt, felt safety, the ability to regulate our nervous system, um, and safety in relationships. And so horses provide all of that because we have to connect with them in a safe way. They have to connect with us in a safe way. We have to build that relational um, trust in order to begin working together. And so we have to learn about grounding ourselves and calming and relaxation. Um, and then when we're interacting with them, it can't be in this punitive punishing way that's triggering to either us or them. It needs to be sort of with this lively, authentic, playful energy um, and good boundaries. And those are all, all elements of trauma-informed practices. You know, this is Tisa, by the way. Um, Dr. Dakota, we talked just briefly prior to this and you mentioned I'm going to dive right in the, the broad range of healing qualities that horses can provide, like just touch on that a little bit, what maybe you noticed. And then I do have another side note on the story of trust with a horse that you actually brought to my attention when you were just talking. Sure. It yeah. So I am always surprised at how, uh, you know, in my experience, you can bring somebody of any age and any diagnosis or any um, developmental issue into the arena with a horse, and it works. Um, it, so it's not like this narrow focus of we need people with only this diagnosis or only this age range. It just works. I've seen um, uh, early grade school age child with selective mutism who hadn't talked in school ever, were like first or second grade, never talked to teachers in a school setting. Um, began verbalizing in the arena after engaging with a horse for like 20 minutes. Um, horses also seem to have some sort of uncanny ability to understand children with autism and interact with them in a way that helps autistic children engage socially in ways that they don't seem to be able to engage in human-to-human -human relationships. Um, I've seen horses do really great work with people with trauma, but also people who have suicidal ideation and depression. Um, they're amazing in family systems or group settings because they teach us about group dynamics and um, they are good training tools for therapists. I've used them that way before too. Um, and they just, I, I have yet to find a specific disorder or diagnosis that, that the horses can't work with. Wow. That's incredible. I'm glad you touched on all of that. Um, I kind of want to circle back to also when you talked about how horses just naturally, there's that relationship and they're so hyper vigilant towards us. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but one time this was about seven years ago. And I, I ended up with a herd of horses that were, it was by accident. They were slightly neglected. I'm not even going to dig into it that deep. But if a horse isn't touched for a long time or cared for properly, I, I would call them neglected. And mm -hmm. that led to fear, that led to mistrust, et cetera, whatever. 
but I was on a mission to make these horses something. And it was a lot, a lot of days. I mean, months, I did not think I was getting anywhere. I could take a horse that had been treated um, normally, I would say, and we'd get so much further in a month. And I thought, am I ever going to get anywhere? But you brought this to light with me. I had one of those horses, maybe by the fifth or sixth month, fall down on me. And I'd worked with her every day. She slipped on the ground. I was loping on third barrel. She fell down and I got hung up all by myself in the barn. And I was just thinking, what am I going to do to get out of this situation? Mm. She, she stood there and she shouldn't have. As spooky and as mis, you know, uh, mishandled as she was, she should not have stood there. But what you're saying relates to building, I built a relationship. Mm-hmm. For some reason, she trusted me enough with me hanging off of her to stay there. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to circle back. Everything you said touched on that story in my mind. Yes. You know, the the native, the Northern Plains native people, and of course, native people across the nation have a really special tie to horses. And so as much as horses are just by nature trauma-informed, they're also culturally appropriate for native people because of the history and not just because of how horses enabled um uh, indigenous people to, to travel distances and to hunt in in ways that they hadn't before the horses came. Um, but, but because the horse to them was a relative in every sense of the word. And those of us who love our, our pets and take our pets as part of our family, understand that they really took them as, as a relative and those relatives, the horse relatives have, um, they're sacred and they have special knowledge, knowledge, like children sense things and know things. And like dogs seem to sense things and can sniff out things that humans can never, ever um, perceive. Horses have horse medicine. Um, and if we're in relationship with them, um, we, we learn from them. And so having horses in the therapeutic setting or having horses in some sort of developmental program honors native cultural traditions. Um, it creates a sense of connection and belonging to our, our tribal history and our ancestors. Um, and, and horses are considered our friends. So they're culturally appropriate as well. Um, and they, they take care of us like we take care of them. There's that mutual reciprocity and relationship. Another thing that gets broken when, um, caregivers have been harmful to children, people relearn that in their relationship with the horse. That ties, um, really, really well into the next, uh, question I had kind of a question. And I was watching, I'm a bit of a fangirl for you, Dr. Dakota. I was watching uh, one of your seminars. I believe it was called Ignite Your Warrior Spirit. Do you have a seminar? Uh, Yeah, that was down. I think we were in Chandler, Arizona, one of our first conferences we held, uh, Uh, gosh, five years ago. It was really, really great. And you made a point and you said, you know, when we feel afraid, our nervous system tells us to find our safe person. However, many of the participants that were, we have in equine assisted services don't have a safe person. So they don't really have the same trauma response, maybe with a horse as they would with a teacher or a counselor or a medical professional. Could this be just a little segue for you to tell us how trauma really affects those neural pathways and what's going on with development? Because so many people think when um, kiddos go to 
foster care or when they go to school, they're safe at that time. But your body and your brain and your nervous system doesn't know I'm in school. I'm in a safe place. I can turn it all off now. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So trauma, especially trauma in childhood, you know, when the child is um, their brain and their bodies are growing, it's being designed based on the environment. So if the environment is threatening or chaotic, the nervous system becomes hypersensitive and, and expects those patterns. Um, and, and we think that we have a lot of conscious control over our behavior and we really have much less than, than what we think we do. In fact, probably the majority of what we do is unconsciously driven, um, by, by neurons, by mapping in the, you know, nervous system by synapses, uh, maybe even by gut microbiota, who, who knows, but, um, once the, once the patterns in our nervous system become practiced enough, they become like motor memory. Um, and we can do them without being conscious, which is a good thing without being fully conscious, because most of what we do is behavior like that. I mean, you think about driving to work, how much of driving to work do you actually have a conscious recollection of and how much of it, um, do you not even remember passing that sign or you don't even remember the first five minute, the last five minutes of the drive? I mean, that happens to me all the time. Um, but my unconscious body and my nervous system knows exactly what to do. So I don't have to be fully aware of everything I'm doing all the time. Um, and my system takes over and does what it needs to do. Um Trauma is like that, uh, just on steroids. So when the nervous system perceives threat, it really hijacks our conscious brain and, and it hijacks the body and it responds to the threat in whatever way the person has learned to achieve safety. So if safety means physical aggression, if safety means hiding, if safety means freeze or shutdown or lying, um, or whatever it means, that's exactly the behavior that the nervous system will produce. Um, it's the brain and the body, especially at those young aids are malleable enough that all of that can be changed. Um, but it's not changed by us, uh, lecturing a child and it's not changed by us, um, practicing it with them one time. Those patterns develop, um, over a period of time with dozens and dozens of repetitions in a highly emotional and chaotic um, situation, they get mapped in there pretty quickly. And so in order to remap them, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of continuous action-based practice. Like let's go through the motions in interaction rather. And we, as humans, we tend to punish and we tend to lecture um, and we tend to control. And those are all of the things that actually inhibit learning. Um, It's safety in relationships, safety in the body, safety in the environment, that feeling of connectedness and fun, playful interaction and moving the body that actually creates learning. And and the more fun we're having, the faster the learning occurs. And all of those things happen in the arena just naturally, right? Horses, once we establish that safety, horses are connected. We're connected with them. It's fun. It's playful. We're engaging. We're moving our body. It's a multi-sensory experience. That's really a different thing than sitting in a classroom, listening to a lecture or sitting in the therapy office, um, doing a cognitive process. That was going to be my question, actually. How do you see the horse once it's integrated into this, these children's lives? How does that help them heal? What has been your personal experiences, which I'm sure is a lot. Right. So maybe just touch on a keynote and maybe the time frame, like, you know, advocate 
educating the public, this, this doesn't happen overnight. The trauma didn't happen overnight necessarily. Right. So, so, the, so the sort of what some of the research has suggested is that in, in a typical human, it takes about 400 repetitions of a behavior to get to that point where we have synapse development. Um, that's a lot of practice. Um, and, and that only what inhibits that is fear. Um, and so we have to first alleviate the fear for learning to occur. And then we have to practice the actual action of the behavior over and over and over. So if I need a child to talk to me respectfully, and I just say, don't talk to me respectfully, or, or, or don't talk to me disrespectfully, or if you do that again, I'm going to consequence you, um, then I've done nothing to help remap their nervous system that does that perhaps automatically without much self-control. Um, so a lot of times, people know that they're not supposed to be doing something and they struggle to change it because there's actually like no neural networks in place for the nervous system to choose to go there, even though cognitively they would like to. Um, but if I say, Hey, um, it, can you say that to me again in a respectful way? Or yes, I would be happy to get that snack for you, but could you ask with respect? Then I give them another chance to practice it. And th it's the action-based learning that really creates new neural pathways in a non-threatening, safe, playful environment. So the more fun we can have with this, um, the easier it happens. If you think about the initial interaction between a child and a horse or an adult and a horse, um, you know, even myself where I'm fairly familiar with horses, I don't just run up to any horse. It's just like a person. We got to get to know each other. The horse has to know who I am. I have to know who the horse is. We have to understand what our behavior means. Um, and we don't really have the ability to communicate verbally with one another. So we have to look at one another's nonverbals. Um, and I gotta, you know, if I'm working with a person who has had a lot of physical trauma, I'm going to be extra careful about not in, not um, intruding on their physical space and making sure that I ask permission in any way that I move around them so I don't frighten them. Um, I'm going to do the same thing with the horse and they're going to do the same thing with me. And so through this, um, this relationship, then we're establishing safety. We're learning to trust each other. Um, I also know that if I come in and around a horse and I'm really escalated or really frightened, the horse is going to feel that nervous system and they're going to be agitated. And so I got to learn how to um, correct that. I got to learn how to use my calming tools and make sure I'm in a good space before I interact with this horse. Humans are the same way. And especially children, they are so cued into our nervous systems um, and they don't have all of the cognitive things interfering with their capacity to um, interpret that. They just feel it. They can't, maybe can't describe it to you. They just feel it and they react to it. Um, and so if we're going to interact with children, we need to be calm inside of our bodies. And especially if we're interacting with children who have trauma because they're hypersensitive to threats. So they're perceiving our agitation, our um, escalated voice in a threatening way. And that, you know, that not only does that scare them and re-traumatize them, it shuts down their capacity to learn new things. Wow. That, that was so good. And so on empowering, you know, just what we can do with horses, how we have these partners. I hate when people uh, utilize the word like modality, because they really are more than a modality, they're a partner. So it does bring me to kind of my next question, we really, really talked about the relational piece. But what we haven't talked about is another organic gift 
that horses bring us. And it's kind of like their rhythmic bilateral movement. How does that help in trauma processing? So what research has shown is when that we add rhythmic sound, rhythmic movement and two sides of the body, it helps with integration of information. Um, it also helps with regulation. Um, it sort of, if you think about trauma as trauma takes all the systems that are supposed to be synchronized and just creates chaos in the body. Um, and all those things are supposed to be communicating with each other in this patterned way. And they can't anymore because of the trauma. Um, it helps reestablish that sort of rhythm in the body. And then it helps integrate. So, um, the, the brain is communicating with the body and the different parts of the brain are communicating together because sometimes we hear something and we know it, but we can't integrate it. So we can't make the change. And so it helps with the integration. Um, and it helps getting connecting the brain and, and the body brain, because really, you know, we think of the brain in our head and that's one brain. Um, but there is an equally, um, intelligent system in our body and the two of them communicate together and that information has to be integrated. Um, so, so the rhythmic bilateral movements, I mean, just think about the motion. I can almost imagine myself sitting on a saddle and the horse is just sort of walking along and there's that back and forth sway. Um, and there's, you're, you're balancing yourself. You're feeling the, the sensory proprioceptive pressure of the saddle, all, you know, all of the elements you're having this multi-sensory experience, um, or, or we're doing activities that engage in this rhythmic pattern, um, two different sides of the body and doing that together with a horse, we're synchronizing ourselves. So we know those things to be sort of naturally calming in terms of just calming the nervous system. Um, they're also culturally appropriate for native people who sort of rhythm and rhythm and movement, rhythm and sound, um, are, are elements of their traditions and ceremony and their way of being. Um, and so those, you know, one of the things that is really exciting to me about trauma research is it really validates indigenous practices as some of the best tools for healing. So can I just rewind back just a little bit and make this clear to maybe myself and the viewers, you mentioned that trauma, trauma can be so such a, a strong thing that it inhibits a person physically, not, it just doesn't start mentally, but it kind of. I guess would say turns your body upside down and you have to get it back to balance somehow or working together. I don't right. know how, you know, I'm just, I didn't realize trauma not only affects the brain, but it can also affect a person physically. Yeah. Anything that affects our mind affects our body and vice versa. Um, and trauma recollections aren't just memories of the events. Um, they are largely sensory triggers. So if people have a tra traumatic event and it gets triggered, it will come back to them in fragmented sensory information. So it's like the smell of something the you know, the feel of the carpet, the temperature in the room. Um, and that's the information that's stored in the body. And so normally, not always, it can be a recollection, but often what people are reacting to are sensory experiences in the environment that are reminders of the trauma because the body says, the body sends the sensory information. Oh, the smell. Say it's a smell of whiskey. That's a trauma trigger. Um, it sends that information. Everything has to cycle through 
the survival part of the brain before it gets up into the part of the brain that can really intellectualize what's happening. So it sends the smell of whiskey up through the survival part of the brain and the survival part of the brain goes, "Mm, that's associated with something really frightening. You're in trouble. You're not safe. And it sends out a threat signal. And so before the person even has an opportunity to understand or interpret what they're reacting to, um, they're simply reacting. And I think that just brings us full circle to one of our, you know, the first questions that we had for you talking about our nervous system looking for a safe person. And they don't have these responses oftentimes with horses unless there has been some sort of trauma with a horse. And when they're rebuilding themselves, it's the same tools that they're using with the horse as they need to navigate through school, through their occupation, through family and other relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and animals are good substitutes for connection when safe human connections aren't available. Um, and they do help heal the attachment brain and, you know, whatever has been harmed in, in terms of relational capacity, animals can help to heal that. And it's a good place to start with people who just cannot make a safe, feel safe enough in relationships to start there. And, you know, it, it's, it's easy and, and not that small dogs can't be therapeutic, but it's easy to, to feel safe with a super cute little puppy. Um, it's not easy to feel safe with this huge, you know, 500 pounds or whatever horses weigh creature, um, that could probably hurt you in an instant. Um, and so you learn a lot about trust when you're working with an animal that big. Um, and you learn a lot about how, your what you're doing might interfere with building trust and a lot of times what we do that interferes was developed for our own safety right we we developed it because in some other part of our life we needed to do that to establish safety but in healthy relationships it inhibits um, the development of those so that's why that's part of the reason people repeat the same unhealthy pattern over and over and over because they just can't figure out how to do something new. Right, right. Well, this was really empowering. And I hope that our listeners, you know, if they're wondering, why do I feel this way? You know, what's going on with me? They can, this can give them the hope that there's help available and there's professionals and there's horses and there's lots of ways to feel better. And we really, really want to thank you for your time, Dr. Dakota. I know you're super busy. So we appreciate the conversation today and the education. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks again for having me and thanks for the work that you're doing. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon.